0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: It would have taken an amazingly talented leader to rule Russia. Keep the peace and reform Russia without
2: disintegrating Russia. That was Robert Service discussing the downfall of Tsar Nicholas II.
3: I think when people tend to ignore the fact that even if you were living in the most fertile place in the world, that life was still pretty hard. And that that nobody in the country had time enough to go and kill each other or any inclination to. There was no military cult in ancient Egypt. You know, it's not not exactly the Celts.
2: And that was John Romer on popular misconceptions about life in ancient Egypt.
4: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the first podcast of February 2017. I'm Charlotte Hodgman, Deputy Editor of BBC History Magazine. Our first interview this week is with historian Robert Service, whose recent book examines the downfall of Russia's last Tsar, Nicholas II. Web assistant Ellie Cawthorne met up with Robert to discuss the Tsar's fateful final months, from his abdication in 1917 to his execution the following year.
0: Um, So your new book looks at the final months of Russia's last Tsar, Nicholas II, and Nicholas was a very controversial figure. What made you want to re-evaluate or re-examine him?
1: Well, the real reason, the honest reason, is that I accidentally came across some new material. I'd just finished a book on the end of the Cold War and uh, I wanted to do something different. And I find that if you yo-yo between one end of Russian history and, and the other, it's refreshing. And suddenly I came across these amazing files, which were the original inquiry into the death of Nicholas II plus a lot of correspondence that I don't think anyone has looked at properly before relating to the judicial discussions that went on in Siberia about the inquiry itself. And, you know, as a jobbing historian, I thought this is a goldmine. This is not a chance to be missed. I looked at the period after his fall from power, and you might ask, What is interesting about that, apart from the personal tragedy and the family tragedy, because Nicholas was shot along with his immediate family in July 1918, I thought to myself, if I look at his diary and if I look at the conversations that he had with the people of his entourage and with the people who were his jailers, at a time when he's out of power and he's not trying to impress anyone, when he's not having to pretend anymore, when he doesn't have to deceive ministers or policemen who are acting on his behalf or advisers on the agrarian question or whatever, I'll get somewhere nearer to what he really did think about life and politics in Russia. So that was the real incentive for writing the book. There was a political incentive as well as um, a psychological and personal incentive. It's not just about the way that Nicholas lived for the last 16 months of his life. It's about what Nicholas really thought about Russia, about Europe, about foreigners, about the war, about revolution. And it's all there.
0: So can you just run us through what happened in those big four last months? So how did we get from Nicholas's abdication to his execution?
1: Nicholas II was based at the Eastern Front by choice from 1915 onwards. And he was at the front or near the front when political demonstrations took place in the Russian capital, Petrograd, hundreds of miles away. And the parliament, the Duma, had a leadership which made it very clear that if there was to be tranquility behind the front lines for Russia to pursue the war effort, then he had to step down. Now, politicians had often said that he should step down before liberals and a lot of conservatives wanted to see the back of him. But this time... The high command agreed and Nicholas had a very deep affection for his military and this broke his spirit when he found that politicians whom he totally despised wanted to see the back of him, he ignored them. But when his best generals said the same thing, uh, they didn't put it in an uh, impertinent way, but they did say, that there wouldn't be peace in the country until he he abdicated. Then he suddenly abdicated. He stepped down from the throne, amazing everyone around him, and he became a private citizen. He became Nicholas Romanov, private citizen. And he was taken into custody in the Alexander Palace at Tsarskae-Sylor, outside Petrograd, and lived in pretty comfortable circumstances until August 1917, when, for reasons of political security, the provisional government thought it best to transfer him to somewhere more distant. So they sent him to Western Siberia. Then the Bolsheviks took power in the October Revolution, and it was no longer a matter of indifference to the new government as to how Nicholas and his family were confined. And they decided, partly in order to make sure that nothing untoward happened to him, but mainly because they wanted to have more control over the conditions of his confinement, they moved him to Yekaterinburg in the Urals. And he went on a helter-skelter train ride, there was, for a day or two, a suspicion that the people escorting him were going to try to enable him to escape across to the Far East. So there was a real harem-scarum day or two when the train went east and then it went west again and before it actually finally arrived in Yekaterinburg. And there they stayed until July 1918, when the order was given to shoot them, and not just to shoot the Romanos, but shoot the retainers, even shoot some of the pet dogs. And they were thrown down a mine shaft after being burnt on a funeral pyre out in the countryside, away from the gaze of peasants. And there their remains existed until... The end of the last century.
0: So your book draws on some new material from Nicholas himself and the things that he was reading and what insights um, do you get from this material about how Nicholas took this momentous decision?
1: What these documents tell us is that he was exhausted as a wartime leader, that he was committed to the army, that he felt that by stepping down He would remove himself as an obstacle to national unity among Russians. And he was a Russian national patriot above all else, although he was an emperor who ruled Ukrainians and Uzbeks and Georgians. He identified himself above all with the Russians. He identified himself also, and this also comes through very strongly, with the sort of Russia that had existed before Peter the Great had Europeanized it. So he introduced to the court forms of ceremonial that he thought had existed before the year 1700. So he was a bit of a nostalgic. He was really, literally, a reactionary. And he felt very deeply that his dynasty could, or at least he, couldn't rule the country in a way appropriate to this way of thinking about Mother Russia.
0: We are, of course, coming up to the centenary of the Russian Revolution. Mm. Um, To what extent was Nicholas to blame for everything that unfolded?
1: Nicholas II was a very reluctant reformer who had allowed a parliament, to exist in Russia because of the revolutionary disturbances of the year 1905. But he never reconciled himself to that. And he annoyed those moderate conservatives who got elected to the state Duma, who might have worked cooperatively with the Duma. So Nicholas II didn't have very much chance of avoiding a future with much more drastic reforms in it than he had already conceded. But he stood next to no chance of surviving when this rather rickety political system was put under the pressure of total war. Nicholas had been intransigent he compromised as little as he possibly could. He'd brought a certain amount of scandal on the dynasty by his liaison with Grigory Rasputin. Um, there were rumors that Nicholas's wife was having an affair with Rasputin. It wasn't true, but this was an indication of the general annoyance with Nicholas that a scandal like that could take off so readily. This would have been difficult enough a storm to weather if the war hadn't occurred and if the war hadn't have gone on so long. And it put everything under strain, administration, transport, food supplies, housing. Russia was in a mess behind the lines and in an angry mess. So his failure to confront the the questions of daily life that affected ordinary workers, ordinary peasants. These people were not having an easy life in wartime and his preoccupation with the army, while it was understandable, was disastrous. So he did bring this revolution upon his own head. I think he was also an exhausted man. It was almost as if you get the feeling from his diary and from his entourage that he was relieved to lay down the burdens of office. You don't get the feeling that he regretted losing power. You get the feeling that he regretted the way that he lost power and the consequences for the politics of the country. But there doesn't seem to have been any personal regret.
0: So as you say, he was kind of blind to a lot of the problems that his people were facing. Was it that he was aware of all the issues and he was ignoring them? Or was it that he was just ignorant of them?
1: I don't think Nicholas II had the slightest idea about how a peasant lived in Russia before the First World War. The peasants that he saw were devout Christians on pilgrimages, people who were going to be deferential and not say anything rumbunctious to him. He didn't really know the peasants. Actually, that's a very interesting thing about the period after he fell from power. One of his jailers was an ex convict who had been imprisoned for shooting a policeman in a political incident in the 1890s, Uh, a man called Pankratov. And they just loved talking to each other about Siberia, about peasants, about reindeer, about the climate. Now, Nicholas had been through Siberia as the heir to the throne in the 1890s. And, of course, he only saw crowds of people who loved the Romanovs, Pankratov told him about the other Siberia, the physical, political, social, economic. And to do him justice, Nicholas wanted to learn this from this remarkable old man. So they had endless conversations. They used to lock themselves in a room and talk endlessly about Siberia. And if you look at the books that Nicholas read in Tsarskaya Selo, then Tobolsk, then Yekaterinburg, a lot of them are about sections of the population with whom he had very, very little contact.
0: Does that suggest that um, after he had been forced to abdicate, he kind of recognised that he didn't fully understand Russia?
1: He was a very proud self-confident man. But he knew there were gaps in his knowledge. I know that sounds contradictory, but I don't think he ever went round dolefully saying to anyone, I really messed it up. He never said that to anyone ever, even though he had messed it up. (laughs) Most of the country thought there was a ruler who really messed up the economy and politics and all the rest of it. He didn't think that, but he did know that there were things about Russia that he didn't know enough of, that he hadn't had enough time to uh, know about. So he read, for example, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Again, there's an irony here. Tolstoy was regarded by the Orthodox Church as a heretic. uh, His works were subject to censorship before the 1905 revolution. And whose government was running the censorship? Nicholas II. He was plugging the gaps in his own education and in the education that he'd given his children.
0: Perhaps to give Nicholas his due, what redeeming qualities did he have as a leader do you think there's any way he could have pulled it back from the brink?
1: I can't think of any, any serious redeeming qualities because Nicholas was a, a very poor leader. It would have taken an amazingly talented leader to rule Russia, keep the peace and reform Russia without disintegrating Russia. It was going to take a political genius, and he certainly wasn't a genius. He was a limited man. He didn't really recognize this in himself, though, because he was surrounded by toadies, people who just said the right thing to him. And if people didn't say the right thing to, to him, then they didn't get invited back to court. Nicholas II had lots of time to think about the consequences of his abdication, and who was to blame for the travails that affected the country in the rest of 1917 and then into 1918. And there he revealed himself definitively as having an idea about politics that was very close to what later became known as fascism, he really believed that the Jews were an alien, dark force that was dedicated to the breakup of the Russian Empire and to the ending of what he saw as Russian Christian civilization. His idea was that Russia was steadily falling into the hands of Jews and he thought that the proof of this was what happened in the October Revolution when the Bolsheviks took power and he wrote in his diary a list of the Bolshevik leaders some of whose names he got wrong and then he put alongside them their original because all of them had revolutionary pseudonyms. Uh, He put their original birth names and he he was convinced that all of the Bolsheviks were Jewish.
0: How did it go from Nicholas being in exile to Nicholas being executed?
1: Ultimately, they hoped to put him on show trial. They hoped to bring him back and hold a trial which would arraign him for all of the political, economic, and military difficulties that the country had fallen into. Why didn't they do that? So the the conventional reason given for this is that the Yekaterinburg Bolsheviks, in partial consultation with Lenin back in Moscow, took the initiative and pressed the Moscow leadership to accept the need To execute the Romanos before they fell into the hands of the anti-Bolsheviks. But what I've come to conclude is that it wasn't just the military situation in Yekaterinburg, it was also the military situation in Moscow that played a part. This explains why Lenin was so ready to approve the decision to shoot them all. At that particular moment, the Bolsheviks were nothing if not ruthless. If you had people who might be put at the head of a counter-revolutionary force, then you liquidated them. Nicholas II has become a, a useful historical object in the hands of those in Russia who would like to have seen a restoration of the monarchy. Well, that's obvious. But he has also been treated as uh, a martyr. He's been canonised by the Russian Orthodox Church. Even Putin has shown elaborate respect towards the memory of Nicholas II. And Nicholas II has started to be romanticised even by many Russians who don't politically share his ideas about public affairs. What I've tried to do in my book is to bring back the historical Nicholas II, a man who was a decent family man, a complacent ruler, and a far-right political thinker a more complex man than the rather romantic um, figure that appears in Russian publications and actually appears widely in Western books to this day.
2: That was historian Robert Service. Robert's book, The Last of the Tsars, Nicholas II and the Russian Revolution, is on sale from the 23rd of February, published by Macmillan. You can read more from Elian Robert's interview in the February issue of BBC History magazine, out now. Our second interview is with historian and author John Romer, who argues in his latest book that much of what we think we know about ancient Egypt is, in fact, wrong. Reviews editor Matt Elton caught up with John to find out more about some of these popular misconceptions.
5: What years does this second volume cover?
3: It covers the time from the Great Pyramid, that will be about two thousand five hundred BC, to uh, about for about a thousand years actually, you know, uh, to the to the collapse of the Middle Kingdom. So, um, about a thousand year period, roughly. I'm not too keen on dates because. there are dates, in a funny way, and they, you know, you say, oh, it's 2,872 to 1,932. People get a sort of security about it, but it doesn't mean a lot, actually. <laughs>
5: um, and uh, what sort of events does that period of time cover? What sort of things might people know about or perhaps not be so familiar with, I suppose?
3: Oh, well, that's unbelievable. It's a really remarkable period. I mean, I was just going to finish this this uh, work in two volumes, but there's so much that ha- has happened in the last 20 years about this particular period. It just went on and on and on. I couldn't believe it. Well, uh, first of all, you've got the, all the great pyramids being built, which, is, um, which I covered in the first volume, but I didn't cover the society it at- the time. So this volume starts off with the people who made the Great Pyramid what we really know about them as opposed to the fantasies that are usually spun about the kings of Egypt. Um, And then it goes through the remainder of the Old Kingdom which is a very remarkable time and again is full of these silly stories from the Greeks and one thing and another. But actually there's quite a lot going on which people don't often hear about. Again something that's been found out really in the last 20 years or so. Then you've got this remarkable period in the middle, which is which is a sort of hiatus when the ancient Egyptians stopped building monuments. And in more warlike 80s, it's been called a time of starvation and murder and wars. And... But in fact, um, modern research has shown that the graveyards of the period are full of people who are just as fit and well as they were at any other time. It's just that they stopped building monuments. So I go into that in some depth about why they stopped building monuments and what this meant to the people. We suddenly became richer because they didn't have to build pyramids for their king anymore. So they were actually doing very well, thank you very much. Um, and then, of course, you've got the rebirth of the kingdom and it really is a renaissance um, when when a group of um, local governors in Thebes take control of Egypt again and we don't know how they did it or what their motive was but we can see what they did which was to literally remake the pharaonic state in a different and new way and that is the most beautiful period in all Egyptian history when these people, it was the first time the ancient Egyptians have ever looked back at what they've done, taken the bits they wanted and rebuilt the state. And The really touching and remarkable thing that's come out of the new research is the tremendous efforts they went to to do this. I mean they sent expeditions across the Sahara they sent boats down to Egypt. Ethiopia, not for practical things but just for the things they needed for the rituals of the court really and that was what the state essentially is all about because when you're remaking something you go for the essential bits and you can see that's the character of ancient Egypt there and in so doing so and so rebuilding it They made a very fine literature and the most beautiful works of art and culture that the ancient Egyptians ever made. So it's a very exciting period, really.
5: There's two things out of that. One is, why did they stop building? And secondly, you mentioned that there were kind of beautiful things that came out of this later period. Are there any particular buildings that stand out for you, I suppose?
3: Well, <laughs> this is just extraordinary. Um, dealing with your second
5: question first, um,
3: there there are no. There's one building left in any good state from the period at all. Uh, all the rest have crumbled or have been demolished by later builders. And the one building we've got was fished out the foundations of a, where it had been used uh, in a later building. You know, so there's very little building, but the art, the quality of the art was never surpassed so your first question was what happened in the intermediate period Mm, yes well i think look people say oh that's a new theory i don't deal in theories i deal in facts other people and most other histories extract information from largely irrelevant things like bits of literature or poetry and then pretend they're history um i don't i go for facts on the ground and what the facts on the ground show is that during the old kingdom after the great pyramids were built the kings laid back a bit and all the resources that had gone into building the truly colossal pyramids the four great pyramids of khufu and snefru and and, and all the giza pyramids and snefru's monuments um all of that resource was taken into the court itself and the courtiers, and they started to build tombs that had mortuary cults like the king. And after about 300 years, not only was the court still building pyramids, but it had three or 400 years of funerary cults to support. And of course, that doesn't just mean leaving things on altars. It means the large numbers of families which each one of these monuments was supporting. So the court had become... Very, very big. Now, at the same time, the level of the Nile was slowly going down. It was going down so slowly that people in, in a single lifespan, you would have noticed it. But over several centuries, uh, as modern archaeology has shown, the level of the Nile from the time of the Great Pyramid to the ending of the Old Kingdom went down several meters And this meant that they were being squeezed in the amount of crops they could grow, because all crops, all water comes from the Nile, plus the ever-enlarging funerary cults. So it happens that they simply... Uh, there's a sort of tipping point. They no longer have the resources to make monuments anymore. It doesn't mean that people are starving or poor or fighting or anything. It just means that they just don't have the resources. And then something extraordinary happens. It's as if a bunch of people, we don't know who they were, suddenly turned on the funerary cults. They actually smashed them to pieces. It's as if they no longer wanted that particular bunch of ancestors around anymore. Um, Because, I mean, the dead are seen as being with the living. That's why they need to eat. And they inhabit the same space on earth as the living. There is no heaven as such in ancient Egyptian society. So the dead and the living form the same community. and, And they do this extraordinary aesthetic thing after making all these beautiful sculptures. They then go and smash them to pieces. And the temples in which the offerings were made. So this takes place in about 100 years, and then slowly, slowly from the south, the idea of a national court, of a sort of central place that governs all the regions of the Nile Valley, slowly starts to come up again. The really lovely thing in all this is that although they smashed up the mortuary cults of the ancestors of their court, they were not angry with the idea of the state and religion. Because the burials in that intermediate period when they were no longer making monuments are actually richer burials than they were making before. And ordinary people were copying the burials of rich people and actually adding ideas to them. So the the sense of community with the living and the dead was, went right down through society and carried on. It's just that at some point, it's almost as if the nobles, the governors of the provinces decided that it would be better to join Egypt back together. And that's what happened from Thieves. So I think that's the truth about the first intermediate period. No starvation, no wars, no moral collapse. I mean, if you read a lot of modern histories, do you think they were written by Lord Cromer, the way they go on? I mean, you know, they say stuff like, oh, there's definitely a moral collapse, and people, they've no longer moral fiber. and You know, when these uh, foreign peasants uh, get like that, there's nothing to be done, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just extraordinary stuff. I'm, I'm quite angry about the way a
5: lot of ancient Egyptian history is written, actually. You talk a bit about that in the book, in fact. Um, are there ways in which you think that we kind of misunderstand this period?
3: Oh, completely, completely. I think, we, I think uh, virtually all of ancient Egypt has been misunderstood. You've got to remember that the people who did the fundamental work in laying down what ancient Egypt was. I mean, there's three lots of people, really. There's the Bible and the Greeks. Uh, Ancient people, uh, they have one idea. Then there's um, Champollion, and then there's the Germans. Uh, um, uh, Champollion laid down all the terms by which we discuss ancient Egypt. That is king, country, courtiers, nobles, peasants, priests, soldiers. All those terms were already set down by Champollion at a time when Europeans had a very very strong idea about what all those terms meant actually and you know in times of revolution in Europe you know the idea of nation was a hot idea in France but I mean the fact he translated Egypt as Egypt I mean is sort of barking it's not a place it's a culture uh you know in the same way that um, tribal peoples today don't I don't, you know, have the tribe doesn't have a little dotted line around the edge called, you know, Fred's tribe land or something. So neither did ancient Egypt. So that was one thing. But the worst thing of all was the great geniuses that actually interpreted the grammar and logic of the German, of the Egyptian language and made it read so we could read it were actually a bunch of hard right wingers. This is not that all of them were Nazis, though many of them were actually active, very active Nazis.
5: So our understanding of this period period is often shaped more by the people who did the later interpretation than it is the period or the culture itself, is that right? Completely, completely, completely
3: shaped. I mean, um, uh, any history of the Old Kingdom, um, hopefully mine is different, but any history of the Old Kingdom uh, leans on material from different periods, It assumes that the ancient Egyptians never changed, so it takes parallels from one from a period of 1,000 or 2,000 years later and dumps it back into the earlier period. What's known about the old kingdom in terms of classical Western histories, like personalities, uh, historical events, is zero. and, And anything, I mean, we know nothing. We don't know anything about personalities of any, virtually no, ancient Egyptians at all. And yet you've got, you know, I had a letter from a kid the other day, 16-year-old, who's been told to write an essay on the personality of heb You know, I mean, it's, it's completely Marking, you know, it's not. It's personality of Horem Hev as seen through Greeks, a bunch of old Nazis, and a lot of dreadful popular TV where people run around with blazing torches setting fire to each other, you know. Mm.
5: Something I like about your book is it says that it's important to admit what we don't know as well as what we do.
3: Yes, because that clears the ground and it gets rid of all this um, nonsense. Now, it's funny because some of the uh, less successful reviewers of the first volume said, oh, he says nothing about what we want to know about, which is the Hebsed Festival or the gods and all this, that and the other. And, of course, we don't know anything about that at all. All we've got is a bunch of theories. And from the period that I'm writing about, virtually nothing. I mean, practically everything is taken from... Uh, um, uh, later periods and stuffed into it. I mean, I wrote previously wrote a book on the Great Pyramid and there's a whole school of thought that says, oh no, that's completely wrong. The Great Pyramid, they use these sort of mathematics and this sort of mathematics and they're using what is fundamentally ready reckners that were written 1500 years later. And they're completely inaccurate mathematically anyway, because the Egyptians never worried about precision and quantity. They didn't have any money, so they didn't have to worry about that sort of thing. You know, so, you know, anyway, as you can see, I'm pretty concerned about all this.
5: <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier the fact that there's been loads of discoveries made in the past few decades. What's led to this concentration of discoveries and what are the most important ones among them?
3: Uh, Odd, odd, odd things. Really, one of the most amazing things has been the fact that um, uh, in the last twenty or thirty years, Egyptologists have been able, uh, because of security reasons, have been which they weren't able to do before, been able to leave the Nile Valley and go and work in, say, along the Red Sea coast and in the desert, the Western Desert. I mean, you can go on tours now on the, on the um, we, uh, Western Desert and things like this. Well, I mean, I, I spent, you know, 25 years living in Egypt, and I was never allowed to go outside the Nile Valley, you know. So, uh, and on the Red Sea coast, they found wonderful sites. I mean, they found a site from the time of Khufu, no less, the builder of the Great Pyramid, a port. And in this port, um, there were a series of, um, uh, I mean, a port, the oldest port in the world. It's a great big uh, mole that goes right out to sea, and there's a harbor with anchors and God knows what. I mean, nobody even knew the ancient Egyptians had seagoing boats at that time. But when they started to look in the hills behind the port, they found that there were a series of caves, which the ancient Egyptians had used as chandleries. And those caves are full of extraordinary things. But even more amazing was they, the ancient Egyptians had blocked the doors of these caves with blocks of stone which are pretty big blocks like the ones they used on the Great Pyramid. And this is the only actual example of how blocks were moved by the people who made the Great Pyramid. They were slid along using beams of wood on slick mud. And that is how they blocked. So that is a remarkable thing in itself. Anyway, when they were moving these blocks apart, a great big water papyrus fell out between two of them. And it, and it was nothing less than the oldest inscribed papyrus in the world with the name of Kufa on the middle of it. I mean, I've seen old Egyptologists, I've seen their eyes water up, but this is the oldest papyrus, um, uh, oldest inscribed papyrus in the world. And it's perfectly written. I mean, the guy who wrote it obviously written thousands of such documents. It's a list of stone deliveries to the great pyramid at Giza. Uh, by a boat captain who was delivering stone from one side of the Nile to the other they were at the Red Sea because it's part of the same supply system the Red Sea port was used uh they were shipping uh, copper from Sinai across the Red Sea to this port and then from the port across the desert to the Nile Valley so it's the same people same boats as supplying the stone um not only did this document give an exact list of how many stones was applied over so many days by this boat captain, but it also said that quite a famous man, Ankh-Haf, whose, whose tomb is at Giza, and has this beautiful bust of him, that his office was in charge at the harbour. Now, that is amazing. I mean, suddenly, we know something about how the Great Pyramid was made, which we never knew before. That's one port. They found two others... <laughs> A Middle Kingdom port, which was just as fascinating, very similar, with caves and everything, full of ropes from the Middle Kingdom, from seagoing boats, uh, uh, bits and pieces of the boats themselves, a shipmaker's yard, because the wood was carried from the Nile Valley to the Red Sea. And when they were wondering what the port was for, they found uh, a lot of boxes described with the wonder- described with the inscription... The wonderful things are punt so these boats had sailed down to Ethiopia collected all the oils and ointments and ebony and other stuff that the court needed for its rituals and taken them back to the Nile Valley. I mean that's this is amazing stuff you know and there was another port they found which had enormous copper working places which one of them was so perfectly preserved they started it up again uh, and and uh, made some copper, you know. Yeah, I mean it's just so that's a knockout. Then there's other stuff in the Western Desert, and, and they found this inscription right in the middle of the Sahara, at the point where Egypt, Libya, and the Sudan meet on the map, on the modern map, where the dotted lines meet. They found this inscription of a Middle Kingdom pharaoh, which is a thousand miles further into the desert than anybody ever thought they went. And then chasing it back, they found all of the supply routes, hundreds of pots, donkeys, donkey cars. I mean, that's the sort of level of stuff they found. Just extraordinary. Given
5: that we can't find some things out, what would be the thing that you'd love to know that hasn't yet been discovered?
3: Um... I I don't have questions like that. I, I I look at it from the other end. I I don't know anything, and these people just give me a bit of
5: information, and I think, God,
3: that's wonderful. Do, do you know what I mean? I do. I, mean, I do.
5: Yes, completely.
3: You know, I'm just sort of thrilled to think, oh God, so that's that's a true. Bit of information is it? That's real. So I don't have a million questions really. Actually, I have a million. I have a million things to break down. You know, the idea of Egyptians as empire builders and. Thieves and murderers, and all that stuff they were rather a cheery lot, I think, and uh, happy and uh, I think when people tend to ignore the fact that even if you were living in the most fertile place in the world, that life was still pretty hard, and that, that nobody in the country had time enough to go and kill each other or in, any inclination to that. No, there was no military cult in ancient
5: Egypt. You know, it's not, not exactly the Celts, you know. We should talk a bit about Carter. Um, what stories about him most stand out for you, I suppose? Well... I wouldn't know where to start.
3: I mean, I've, I've worked alongside the guy for a long, long time, one way or another. He and I had the same beginnings. We started off as artists, and we had exactly the same interest in Egypt, which was royal tombs, and how they were started at Thebes. And if you look, I was probably the first person in modern times to look through, well, actually the second. There was an American lady called Elizabeth Thomas but, who told me about them, but um, I was actually the first sort of British person to look through Carter's notes and he is interested in exactly the same thing that I was. They've never been published. They've been plundered by several scholars, uh, taken ideas out of them. But, I mean, his interests and mine were the same. We both worked in the Valley of the Kings. I restored his house. I, I fished out newspapers from under where his bed was. He had pictures pinned on the wall of his bedroom from Country Life magazine. And um, Bloody hell, I have even found his enema tube. You know, I mean... I, You you name it, I found it. I've got a map of the Valley of the Kings drawn in his own hand. Um, When I was working in the Valley of the Kings, we found that the tomb we were excavating had been used by Carter and Carnarvon as the first storeroom for Tutankhamun. And there in the corridor of the tomb were the two sealed doorways, plaster doorways that Carter had taken down, still laying in the corridor with notes from the Egyptologists and him, Carter, still stuffed under the stones where they were left.
5: How would you like this book to change people's views of this period and this culture?
3: I'd like it to make a bridge between the fascination that people have for Egypt and the sort of rubbish histories of war and poisonings and treason that we've got today. I'd like to open people's eyes to this really beautiful, beautiful things that people made and link it to what is left, because the, the fascination in Tut, when he looks at the gold mask, and you look into the eyes of that gold mask, which well, is a pretty damn good piece of sculpture, even if it is gold, you know, it's a pretty wonderful piece. And people are fascinated by it, and then they say, oh, he was a cripple, or he fell out of his chariot, or somebody killed him, or he died of epilepsy at eight, or and all this old nonsense goes on. I just want people to see it. Less of a sort of under the lash of wicked pharaoh making golden masks for this bunch of criminals and a bit more of what the art tells you, which is they were basically well satisfied with their lot.
2: That was John Romer. A History of Ancient Egypt, Volume 2, From the Great Pyramid to the Fall of the Middle Kingdom, is out now, published by Alan Lane. You can read more from this interview in the second issue of BBC World Histories magazine, produced by the BBC History magazine team. It's out now in all good news agents in the UK and will be available in other parts of the world very soon. And now it's time for this week's history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorne.
0: Archaeologists in Cambridge have uncovered more than 25 skeletons at the site of a medieval friary. The discovery was made during investigations at Cambridge University's new museum site, which housed a friary between 1290 and the dissolution of the monasteries in 1538. Experts state that they expect to find up to 40 skeletons over the upcoming four-week dig, which, quote, still has the potential for surprises. In other news, Prince William and Prince Harry have commissioned a statue of their mother, Princess Diana, 20 years after her death in a car crash in 1997. The statue will stand in the grounds of Diana's former home, Kensington Palace. The sculptor is yet to be chosen. In a statement, the princess said, Our mother touched many lives. We hope the statue will help all those who visit Kensington Palace to reflect on her life and her legacy. The time is right to recognise her positive impact. BBC Royal correspondent Peter Hunt stated, This national monument to the wife of one future king and the mother of another has been a long time coming. Meanwhile, a website allowing members of the public to search for possible archaeological sites using satellite technology has been launched. Global Explorer teaches volunteers how to identify subtle changes in landscape that could indicate evidence of unseen man-made structures. It is also intended to help detect signs of looting at archaeological sites. The website's founder, archaeologist Dr Sarah Parkak, has uncovered several ancient sites, including pyramids, settlements and tombs, using the satellite technology. With Global Explorer, we are empowering a 21st century army of explorers to discover and protect our shared history, she stated, describing the site as Indiana Jones meets Google Earth. That's about it
2: for this week's episode, but we'll be back next week with more from the world of history.
4: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.
5: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. It came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control?
1: The Western world was asleep.